I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. Yes. Let me ask you about the video, because I've never yeah. seen a video like that played in, in this room. Uh, it looks a, a bit like a campaign ad. Who, who produced that video for you? Uh, that was done by a group in the office, and it was done just by, we just put some clips together. I could give you, uh, I'll bet you I have over 100 more clips, even better than them. They were just pieced together over the last two hours. That was just, oh, we have far better than that. That's nothing compared to some of them. This was produced here in the White House. Yeah, by, this uh, was done by uh, Dan and a group of people, and they just put it together in a period of probably less than two hours. Why do you feel need to do that? Because uh, we're getting fake news, and I like to have it corrected. That's ABC News correspondent Jonathan Carl challenging President Trump in one of the more bizarre moments from a White House briefing on COVID-19. Trump had just played a brazenly political campaign-style propaganda video extolling his handling of the pandemic and trying to rebut reports that his administration had seriously dropped the ball when it counted. The video was highly selective, of course, leaving out the president's repeated assurances in January and February that the virus was under control and would go away as soon as the weather got warmer. And it raised questions about how the media should report on presidential briefings that are filled with misinformation and have become the functional equivalent of one of the president's political rallies. We'll discuss the briefings and how the media should be covering them with Washington Post media critic Eric Wemple. And we'll check in with Yahoo News' ace coronavirus reporter Alex Nazarian on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. It's no secret that our world has been interrupted. A World Interrupted is a daily podcast telling stories of coronavirus and its impact on the economy. We want to cover the issues in the macro, global economics, the stock market, and our political climate. We'll also cover the micro stories, maybe the ones you don't hear as much about in the news or the media. We hope you'll listen and be a part of the journey. So subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, we were discussing yesterday uh, when we should do this episode of Skullduggery, and we concluded that we should probably wait for the afternoon briefing because that was likely to be newsworthy. At, at that time, we were focused on whether Trump was going to fire Anthony Fauci, having tweeted the day before or retweeted uh, something with the hashtag fire Fauci. But it turned out that the briefing was newsworthy for completely different reasons. The playing of this absolutely bizarre and perhaps unprecedented video. 
Yeah, you know, it's almost like a tick or something with Trump that at times of crisis, at times when the kind of country sort of needs to come together, at times when leaders need to be sober and kind of uh, just, you know, provide useful information um, and guidance and comfort to the American people who are clearly, many of them, suffering. These are the times when Trump is the most self-absorbed and narcissistic. And he, he spent, you know, a good part of the first hour of, of that briefing. By the way, these briefings are getting to be um, kind of endless, you know, well over two hours per briefing. Basically, talking, defending himself, castigating his critics. And it's just, you know, stunning. This is a president who, you know, part of the, there is some kind of method to the madness as well. This is a president who does thrive on conflict and confrontation. And clearly he, in fact, he said in the briefing that, you know, he likes controversy. He knows that controversy is his friend. And I think he believes that particularly in those moments when he's being most criticized, and by the way, there was a long, exhaustive and very well-reported story in the New York Times about all of the missteps and, um, and mistakes that uh, Trump and his administration has made. Those are the times when he is looking to distract as much as he possibly can. Right. And, you know, look, if he if he thrives on controversy, he gets it. I mean, here you had uh, Andrew Cuomo, who was actually saying nice things about Trump in recent days and seemed to be really trying to make an effort to work with the White House and bring the uh, New York state out of the depths of this of this crisis. And, you know, today, Cuomo, having seen the briefing, called called it a comedy skit and completely dismissive of the president. Now, maybe that's what Trump wanted. Maybe that's, you know, exactly, as you say, what he thrives on. But, man, you just wonder whether that's what the public is looking for uh, when there's so much uncertainty, when there's so much fear out there. I think Cuomo does get that. I mean, I think Cuomo's got a pugilistic side to himself, too, so he had to respond. But much of Cuomo's uh, briefing the next morning was really about not getting drawn into a fight with the president. Uh, He said, it's not about me. It's about we. This is not a time for an argument. I don't want an argument with the president. And so I think he was trying to not give uh, Trump what he Uh, what he wanted. Right. Well, uh, you know, Trump can't get enough to, you know, to say the least. This is what he wants. The perception of him being a bit too cozy with the Democratic governor of New York is not what his base wants to hear uh, in this political season. And speaking of political seasons, before we get on to our discussion with Eric Wemple of The Washington Post, we should take note that uh, President, former President Obama today formally endorsed Vice President Biden as the Democratic nominee. I think a lot of people have been waiting for this for some time now with uh, Bernie Sanders out. Obama had free reign to do so. And, uh, you know, again, maybe that's what Trump wants to see as well. Gives him an opportunity to once more run against Obama, the Obama-Biden administration, blame everything on them and pivot to where he likes to be, uh, you know. 
on the attack. Yeah, well, I will point out that uh, Trump did say at, at that briefing that he was amazed that Obama had not yet endorsed sleepy Joe Biden, as you referred to him, and uh, wanted to know when it was going to happen and why hasn't he done it yet. You know, I got to say, I'm not sure that the endorsement of Joe Biden right now is necessarily a good thing for for Trump. People are still pretty fond of President Obama. People remember that Obama um, handled these kinds of crises with um, a bit more skill than this president has so far. And Obama took advantage of that in his endorsement to draw a, a implicit contrast between Joe Biden and Trump talking about how Joe Biden was right by Obama's side during the H1N1 and the Ebola scares, and that Joe Biden is someone who gets things done. And this crisis is a reminder that competent government um, is a good thing. So clearly, um, Obama trying to draw that contrast in a way that would benefit uh, his former vice president. Very true. Whether And I'm sure that um, this is going to uh, play well in your circles in Park Slope. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, how the rest of the country processes it, I think, is going to depend a lot on what happens in the next uh, few weeks and months and whether we recover from the depths of uh, this crisis or it lingers with us for some time. But anyway, let's get on with the show. We got two good guests to talk to and... Um, Let's get on with it. We now have with us on the pod, Eric Wemple, the media critic for the Washington Post, the author of the Eric Wemple blog on the Washington Post website. Eric, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me very much. So, did you watch that wild White House briefing on Monday? It was, I did a mix of watching it and listening to it, and it was uh, sort of uh, gobsmacking in either medium, really. Right. I mean, there's been this debate in media circles now for some weeks about how to treat, how to handle, how to cover these briefings, because they often seem to turn into, um, you know, the equivalent of political rallies. But, you know, this went beyond anything we've seen before. The president is playing a campaign style video meant to defend him uh, against uh, attacks that he didn't do enough on the uh, virus early on. I mean, the idea of playing what looked like a campaign ad at a White House briefing seemed to take this to a whole new level. Well, it did. And I have to say that the campaign ad, no sort of self-respecting campaign would release such a shoddy ad. I mean, it was really kind of poorly put together. Trump said that it was put together in a couple of hours, but the, but the, you're right. The idea behind it, the sort of inspiration was unquestionably uh, campaign, self-promotional, and also incredibly deceptive, too. I mean, one of the points I made uh, last night was that on television these days, there's so much TV, there's so much cable TV, there's so much crap out there that if you want to stitch together a campaign ad for some particular position, you can find a few clips to do it, you know? If you go back over like three months of videotape on the cable networks, you can find someone out there saying something dumb 
that you can roll into an app. <laughs> you can throw in our podcasts and find some material as well. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so I mean, it was really poorly done. It was dishonest to the extent that, on the one hand, Trump in the earlier parts of the news conference was trying to say how the New York Times, this investigative piece that the New York Times had done over the weekend with six bylines, saying that Trump was you know, slow to respond to coronavirus and so on and so forth. He was trying to sit, call that fake. And then during this video, they were crediting Maggie Haberman for acknowledging that the travel restrictions were an effective approach to coronavirus. So on the one hand, they say the New York Times is fake. On the other hand, oh, the New York Times, this, you know, this storied journalistic outfit with high standards. And actually, I mean, Maggie Haberman has been on Twitter saying, frankly, like a lot of other people whose uh, clips were, were in that video, that it was taken out of context. And that what she said was that that was Trump's mission accomplished moment, that after the travel ban, he then didn't really do very much for actually month, they which left was, out they left out the sentence that followed the one that they used they used the clip of maggie haberman saying at the end of the day it was probably effective she's talking about the china travel restrictions because it did actually take a pretty aggressive measure against the spread and then the very next thing she said was in that daily podcast interview the problem is it was one of the last things that he did for several weeks that right. was the very next thing she said and that was cut out of the trump campaign style video we keep calling it a campaign ad i think it's worse than that i think it's like north korean agitprop i mean that whole performance is worse than a campaign ad it is it's propaganda and so that so the question is and you're the media critic, how is the media supposed to deal with this? Most of us, all three of us, I think, uh, most of our careers in journalism, there was, you know, the president, when the president spoke, it wasn't by definition news, but it was likely going, there was likely going to be news. And I know that your newspaper, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and others have begun to stop carrying it. But what should the playbook be for dealing with this if you're, you know, you're in the media, you're trying to cover the White House and the president? Right. Well, I think that we should acknowledge, first of all, that the Trump has sort of designed these uh, sessions to be like a steel trap. You can't really crack it because one moment Trump's saying something ridiculous and then the next moment the scientist is up there, Fauci is up there, or Birx is up there saying something very worthwhile. So you can't take it in blocks. If you do cover it live and just go the whole thing, you're bound to communicate a fair amount of misinformation. And it's hard to ignore the whole thing, because as I said, there's certain parts of it that are very worthwhile. So, you know, Trump sort of constructs this thing. I don't, I don't know whether it's deliberate. I don't think you can ever assign any deliberate motives to Trump. But he, it's designed in such a fashion as to make it very hard for cable news specifically to make hard and fast decisions about how to go. They have been taking more and more recently to dipping in and out of these uh, sessions. Like, for example, CNN will blow off the initial remarks by Trump and then go to the question and answer where they feel that reporters ha can have a better handle on him. They can fact check him on real time. And therefore, the exposure to misinformation, spin, propaganda gets minimized that way. I honestly, I have to say, I honestly don't think there is any really good solution. It's one of those lose-lose situations in my view. But I do think that, you know, the, the traditional sort of like television 
convention of a package, which is that you put together the parts that matter the most, and you communicate the fact that Trump is unhinging these things, you run those things, and you present it to your viewers later. And I, I think that that is a convention of television journalism that doesn't get enough fair time these days. You don't have to do it in real time. The Republic will survive if the news is conveyed two hours later as opposed to in real time. Exactly. So, Eric, I'm watching this on CNN yesterday, and I'm looking at CNN's Chirons. They're they're actually airing it. Uh, and then they have Chirons. Trump has meltdown during White House briefing. Trump falsely claims this. Trump falsely claims that. Plays propaganda video. And I just wonder, it puts CNN in a position of seeming like the political adversary to the president. Now, I grant that it has a it and all of us have a responsibility to correct the president's misstatements and falsehoods. On the other hand, when you're running chirons like that, you're looking like the agitprop that responds to the North Korea agitprop. It doesn't come off as a responsible media organization. That's the way it seemed to me. And I wonder how you would thread that needle. I mean, I, I don't think the chirons are a good, you know, the on-screen graphics are a good response to Trump's sort of approach. As you say, they can be snarky. The Chirons are not made for snark, really. The Chirons were brought into this world years ago. Roger Ailes played a big role in that. And I believe that they are primarily for a very sober, sort of non-attitudinal information. I don't think that's a good way to roll. Again, I think that the reason why CNN, the reason why MSNBC, the reason why Fox News are doing any live coverage of these at all, and Fox News does tons of it. Fox News is wire to wire on these things. There is is ratings. I mean, Trump is able to pull in 10 or 12 million viewers for these sessions. And that is enormous. That is enormous. I mean, CNN in prime time, you know, they're lucky to get a million or two watching their stuff. You know, Hannity can go to three or four million, especially in these sort of days when everybody when nobody has anything else to do. But the, the crowds are enormous that are watching these things. And the, the cable news, you know, you guys, for example, you guys keep score. I guess you care about how many people watch your podcasts and stuff. But you guys keep score by who has what scoops, right? Like who had that scoop about the FBI? Who had the scoop about the dossier? Who had the scoop about this, that, and the other thing? Cable news keeps score by numbers. They care about numbers. They broadcast their numbers. They brag about their numbers, you know, and this is what matters. And if you're not getting the numbers, you're not, you're not even participating. And so that is the compulsion. That is what's driving this, in my view. He's getting the numbers, but it's not entirely clear that it's helping him at all. In fact, after the sort of initial uptick in his job approval numbers, they have started to slip over the last few weeks. I mean, even Rasmussen this week had him down to 43% approval, which is pretty low by Rasmussen's standards. And so one wonders, I mean, maybe the, the, the best thing to do is let the guy go out there and hang himself uh, by conducting these foolish briefings. Well, on, on the other hand, I mean, Ben Bradley, back in the, during the Watergate days, he tried to get the New York Times to boycott background White House briefings because he thought they should be on the record and they shouldn't accept these uh, off-the-record briefings. It, that d didn't work particularly well. But is there an argument, Eric, do you think, for the media to just boycott 
these briefings because, you know, the amount of misinformation that spread because of, you know, the kind of behavior that we saw from Trump yesterday, because there is a number of reporters or a number of reporters who are diligently going to these briefings, actually probably risking their health to do so. I wonder if what you think of, of whether the press should be there at all. Yeah, I think that's a good provocative question. Jay Rosen, New York University, said a long time ago that, you know, send your interns, don't pay any attention. This is back when Spicer was doing the, the press secretary briefings. And same thing. I mean, I say no, I, I'm not saying that you have a particular side on this, but you right. touched on the, the matter that's important here, which is that these are on the record. And I would just say that anytime you get the White House, anybody from the White House on the record, that is something that should be should be cherished, I believe. It should yeah. be, it doesn't necessarily need to be broadcast live, but it's something you should go to. You should ask the questions. And there's a marker because you know, and you've done this, you guys, as I say, you guys are fabulous journalists. You know that whenever you get someone else from the White House on the phone, it's going to be nine times out of 10 on background or off the record or something else really weaselly. And when you get a chance to get anybody from that building on the record, you seize it. And I, the one example I would cite that is very important in the history of you know Trump administration is when Sarah Sanders went up there and she told the entire group of reporters that she heard from all these people at the FBI supporting President Trump's decision to fire James Comey, right? And later that appeared in the Mueller report where the Mueller people asked her about that and it turned out she just lied to the entire White House press corps. And so so even though we may have at the time thought that that Sarah Sanders session was worthless and propaganda and nothing uh, honest about it, it was on the record, right? Yeah. And well, so yeah. there is a marker that we have that we can lay down and we can compare it against later information. And that's always important. Yeah, I know. I would say I, I totally agree with that. And I, and I would add, you know, I think it is it's particularly now, it's especially important uh, for reporters to be there to question and challenge Trump, you know, about false statements that he's making, you know, about kind of near dictatorial statements that he makes about uh, how he has all of the authority and the governments don't. And in fact, I would say there's something you know, to use a word that we've been using a lot in another context, there's something kind of therapeutic about seeing, you know, Paula Reed at that uh, from CBS News from that briefing, challenging him about what the administration did and or didn't do in February. Or I can't remember the name of the CNN reporter who challenged him on, you know, he, he had said that his authority is total. And then, she, you know, she said, that's not true. Who told you that? And then he said, I didn't say that. And, you know, it's important for the country. I think it's important for institutions to see the president being challenged. Well, I was just going to say the partisans are always lamenting that it doesn't seem to matter that, he, you know, that he just keeps rolling along. And it's like we are journalists. We're not out there to affect a certain result. Right. We stick with what we do, which is ask questions, get answers, write it up, write up what we know. We're not out there like we don't care. Not that we don't care, but we're not results driven. Right. We are process driven. Right. I was just going to say, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here because, you know, while I thought that that video was completely over the top and, you know, made a mockery of the whole thing, you know, there was some legitimate news at that briefing and it kind of undercuts a lot of what the media was reporting for the previous 24 hours. This starts with Fauci going on State of the Union with Jake Tapper and making the comments saying, 
saying, obviously, if we had started mitigation earlier, we could have saved lives. And then Trump tweets, uh, does that retweet with the uh, fire Fauci hashtag leading to the question, is Trump about to fire Fauci? We were all yesterday at this time, we were having the conversation, is Fauci even going to be at the briefing, right? And if so, what is he going to say? There seems to be this stark contradiction. Well, he was at the briefing. He speaks early on. He seems to discount much of what the media was reporting about his disagreement with the president says, when I recommended that they do social distancing, when I and Dr. Burks did, the president did it. That seemed to undercut much of what the media was reporting based on that initial uh, Jake Tapper interview. And I thought that was important information. Well, obviously, I agree with you. I think what Dan and I both kind of said is that, well, you need necessarily to have a live broadcast just because what Fauci is, is saying. I don't know. I think you can push that out on Twitter, write up a quick web story on that. I don't think that necessarily means that you must carry this press briefing live, right? The fact that Fauci is basically sticking with the team, standing behind Trump, is undoubtedly very newsworthy information. It has to be written up, has to be talked about. But wait, you're going to have Fauci as a guest on your cable shows, but then when he speaks at the White House, you're not going to cover it live? You know, I don't, I don't think the compulsion to cover things live is that great. What, when have you ever done that? I mean, when has Michael Isakoff ever covered something live? You go out and get it. Well, we have a taped podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have a podcast. You're a reporter. Yeah. You're a damn good reporter. Right. And you've gotten things out to the public very quickly. And everybody has lived. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, yeah. the compulsion for live is... I think is generally speaking, you know, competition. But I and I should say, uh, just to be transparent here, you know, Yahoo News has been taking the feed, and we have been internally debating all of these questions. We uh, have decided that what we are going to do now is we are actually the default position is not to take it. We're going to be watching it and making decisions about whether it is newsworthy, and then we can cut in. But as you point out, Trump is making this extremely difficult because he's on stage there, and you never know when he's going to walk up to the mic and start you know, attacking people politically or spreading misinformation. So it is a very tricky thing. We'll be assessing it as it goes along, but these are all really legitimate questions that I think everyone who is uh, broadcasting these briefings has to think about. And the other thing that I think we have not talked enough about, and this is an argument I made previously on this podcast, is this is this is also a platform for the most high profile and most important public health officials right now who are in a position to disseminate incredibly important information that the American people actually do need and sometimes need in real time. So there are kind of, you know, not to be overly dramatic, but there are life and death consequences here with the kind of information that public health officials have. So that makes it even even more tricky. It does. I, you know, it, it's just, as I say, it's like a steel trap. You can't figure out what to do with these things. They're too wild. They're too erratic. There's just like one moment it's great. And then the next moment it's just, you're a fake. He didn't even say, <laughs> I think he called Paula a fake. Like, you know, yeah. that's, a, that's, <laughs> yeah. if you're, if you're sort of like, Calibrating the gradations of attacks on me. Of fakery. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, it's one thing to say you write fake news because that establishes at least some distance between you and your work product, but you're a fake, yeah. you know, was, I mean, to me, it's just... I don't know, but do we overreact? I mean, it's Trump. He says all sorts of preposterous things all the time, and we kind of have processed it at this point. I think it revs up his base, you know, for a certain portion of the American public. You know, that's what they want to hear. And, you know, then they look at the CNN chirons and they think their views are validated when they see the media serving as the adversary. Anyway, we could endlessly debate this. But, Eric, it's your job uh, to monitor these things. And um, I hope you continue to do so and include in your monitoring how Yahoo News and Skullduggery is uh, handling this by reaching out to uh, esteemed guests with great insights. <laughs> I so, love I appreciate you doing so. I really appreciate <laughs> the opportunity. Okay. And the one rejoinder right. I would make to the shrug your shoulders about Trump is I've talked to all these, you know, Trump supporters and CPAC and all, and the reason why I think we need to be serious about it is because his followers really, 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 really trust everything he says. So I don't think you can ever dismiss what Trump does. Fair enough. Thanks for joining us on Skullduggery, and we hope to have you back. Thank you very much. Back again on Skullduggery, our ace COVID reporter, Alexander Nazarian. Alex, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So the briefing, which we just previously discussed with uh, Eric Wemple of The Washington Post, uh, was uh, truly one of the most bizarre moments of this uh, entire emergency with the president playing his campaign style video. But I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the substance of the briefing and substance. Well, so there was substantive issues that were being touched on, starting with the president's uh, assertion that he has the total authority to reopen the American economy. His exact quotes at the briefing was, when somebody is the president of the United States, the authority is total. Now, that's being disputed today by uh, Governor Cuomo of New York and uh, uh, many others who say they, governors, have the authority here. Uh, What says Nazarian? Uh, It's such a ridiculous idea. I almost don't want to spend any time on it. He's going to go reopen the school gates in all 50 states. He's going to drag people back to work at, you know, the state house in Albany and in Sacramento and everywhere else. And, you know, notice also that states on both the East Coast and the West Coast are forming consortiums of sort of deciding to reopen. And and they're indicating that they are going to do this on their own timelines, on their own terms. And on some level, I think he knows he doesn't have the authority Trump loves to rage at enemies real and perceived. And, you know, he's sort of um, he's a tough talk guy who often ends up doing sort of taking advice of uh, more measured voices, as he did with the Easter uh, reopening right after Dr. Burks or Dr. Fauci talked to him. He said, oh, yeah, well, it might actually be. 
What strikes me about all this is because I think it's like a completely bogus argument. The, the, the entire debate is argument is Trump didn't shut the economy down. I mean, they issued social distancing guidelines, restrictions, but the president uh, hasn't imposed martial law. He's not enforcing the federal government isn't enforcing the restrictions that are in place. So the idea that he has the total authority to lift something that he didn't have the uh, you know that that wasn't imposed to begin with strikes me as a distraction right it's it's the whole it's almost as if he doesn't understand the measures his own federal government has taken which is disturbing right because it's, as you said those measures aren't mandating people don't work it's they're they're, they're actually fairly reasonable no, I would say the social distancing measures aren't controversial in the least. It's just they do lead to a slowdown in the economy. But there's nothing, there's no, there's no switch you can flip to reopen the economy. A lot of that will be when people feel like it's safe for them to go to work. And governors are much closer to the ground than he is. They will know that as well. They'll know it much sooner than he does. Look, I mean, let me just cut in here for a second because all you need to know to say that this is like even a ridiculous debate to be having is Liz Cheney tweeted essentially that the president doesn't have the authority to force the governors to reopen their their economies. I think she tweeted the 10th Amendment, that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution are reserved to the states or to the people. And this is Liz Cheney, whose father, Dick Cheney, was like an avatar of the unitary uh, executive. The unitary the unitary executive. And you know, frankly, I didn't see a single constitutional scholar out there saying that uh, the president has any argument on his side supporting this. So, it is a distraction. I think you're right. Uh, I think Trump does know what he's doing. He let's remember that at the at the briefing yesterday he also said, "You know, I don't mind controversy. I think controversy is good, not a bad thing." And hey, um, uh, by speaking of tweets, I don't know if any of you are on your Twitter right now, but Trump has just tweeted something that I find even more bizarre Michael, than his were you, briefing. Michael, were you scrolling through Twitter while Danny and I were talking? <laughs> <laughs> I have to do something while listening to you windbags. But anyway, all right. Now I'm going to read you the tweet, and I want your real-time reactions to this. Tell the Democrat governors that Mutiny on the Bounty was one of my all-time favorite movies. A good old-fashioned mutiny every now and then is an exciting and invigorating thing to watch, especially when the mutineers need so much from the captain. Too easy! Exclamation point. What is he talking about? I don't know. I don't. I've never heard of that film. I think that is a generational. Wait, you've never heard of Mutiny on the Bounty? I mean, it, it is a classic from the uh, 1930s. Clark Gable and Charles Lofton. You know, Captain then, Captain Bly. Captain Bly. Right? Then Captain redone Bly? by Marlon Brando in the early 1960s. It's the classic story of a mutiny on a British naval ship in the uh, 18th century. But the President of the United States is talking about a mutiny. A mutiny by whom and against. Who Who's the captain here other than him? I don't know, but apparently, according to our colleague, our managing editor, Colin Campbell, that tweet has done 
wonders for the Wikipedia mutiny on the bounty page, <laughs> a million percent increase in traffic because yeah. people don't know, don't aren't familiar with with that story. So. Yeah. Well, Alex, your homework assignment now is to watch the movie. Actually, I, both both versions, the 1930s version and the 1960s, and then we'll come I down and talk about your enthusiasm. it. That's the only thing that's getting me. <laughs> well, our Mark Seaman, our producer, just uh, texted us that this is a reference to to Cuomo. I guess maybe because Cuomo is uh, pushing back on the idea that uh, he has to follow Trump's orders when it comes to reopening the New York state economy. So maybe he's the mutineer. So remember a couple of weeks ago, although it probably feels like a couple of years ago, Trump got into a feud with Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And then before that, he, he called Washington State Governor Jay Inslee a snake. The odd thing about both of those instances, it's not as if he ended up in the end withholding any aid or doing anything. He lashed out at them. It wasted their time. It certainly wasted his time. Frankly, it wasted our time. And then in the end, two days later, he would say something like, well, we gave Michigan everything they needed. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer's a great governor, you know, something to that effect. Or he had Pence say it. So it's not, you know, he talks like he sort of... Um, he talks loudly, but doesn't carry a very big stick, which is. Um... Well, si similarly, you know, on Sunday, he retweets uh, a uh, somebody's tweet with the fire Fauci handle or hashtag. And then yesterday at the briefing, he um, has Fauci at the briefing speaking first and foremost at the briefing. So, Mike, can I add something here? Please do. I saw that, um, and I don't know if I can, I, I saw that Gabriel Sherman of Vanity Fair a couple, it must have been last week, tweeted, this is, you know, this is state television. These briefings are state television. And as you know, I grew up in the Soviet Union. So I have seen my, I mean, I've seen state television. My grandfather has been on, was on state television. That's not what state television looks like. I don't love the briefings. I don't love the weird commercial he played yesterday, but that's not state television. What it is, is a national venting session for millions of people. And that is in itself sort of weird. It's odd to have the president sort of fume and rant at journalists, at governors in public like that. I mean, think about the way Nixon, you know, Nixon would do all this quietly, and then suddenly Michigan wouldn't have, suddenly the shipment of ventilators would get lost on the way to Michigan or something, right? Whereas Trump actually isn't doing that as far as we know, but he is going out there and sort of every day blasting away at his critics. So it's odd. It's not propaganda. It's kind of like therapy for him, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like he's lying on the shrink's table and he's just kind of like laying out his id for, you know, an ego, I guess, for everybody. And this whole, Mike has referred to it as his kind of internal monologue, this whole thing that he does where he is contradicting himself in real time. He just did that, you know, does that over and over again. You know, it's like when he said, we're holding back money from the WHO. And then he said, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to do that. Maybe we'll do that. And then he says, I didn't say we we're going to do that. And it's just laid bare for all to see. He he has this kind of a compulsion to share his uh, everything that's going on in his mind in, in real time. And, and it's just a very strange thing. The, the problem with it, I mean, we can joke about it, but the problem is 
that, and this has uh, kind of been a, a theme on our podcasts, the criticisms of Trump, it's this idea of mixed messaging, that at a time of crisis, when there is a national health emergency out there, people need consistent messaging. They need data, science, and well-thought-out guidelines, and he's just out there contradicting himself, contradicting others. Well, the guidance is that everyone should wear masks, but I'm not going to wear a mask. I mean, it's just endless over and over again, and it is dangerous. Alex, what did you, you've uh, profiled Fauci, you've interviewed him. What did you make of his comments, at, uh, Fauci's comments at the briefing yesterday? Right. I thought they were remarkably measured. I actually didn't, th- I thought his comments that got him in trouble were pretty measured. I, I mean, there's always, in any crisis, one could have done more. And all he was saying is if we did more earlier, we would have uh, saved lives. I didn't think that was worthy of the Trump fire Fauci retweet or of kind of this notion in the conservative media that Fauci is some traitor or something. No, he's saying, I mean, that probably would have been the case with any other person who was president, including Hillary Clinton. There probably would have been some mistake that could have been corrected, or if that mistake hadn't happened, we would be in a better place. But, but I think Fauci has served for every president since Reagan. And under Reagan, he served, he was fighting AIDS uh, while the president wouldn't even say wouldn't even mention HIV AIDS for the first years of the epidemic. This guy knows how to navigate politics. He did it then, 40 years ago, and he's doing it today. You look at the numbers as closely as anybody, and you know there does seem to be some signs that we may have already hit the peak, and um, the numbers are coming down in terms of total new cases. I'm looking at um, my go-to site for that, which is uh, World of Meters, which has the total number of new cases Mike, yesterday. Your your site is Gateway Pundit. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, yeah, uh, truthout.org. Yeah, no, uh, daily cases, 26,641 on April 12th, that's uh, down from uh, 33,000 a few days earlier. Have we hit, hit the peak? Are we on our way down? And if so, how precipitously will the numbers drop? Okay, so I, I was listening to a briefing, I think by the, it, was, it, was by a, it was an international public health official. I think it was uh, president of the WHO. I can't remember exactly who it was, which is a bad lead-in. He said a very smart thing, which is going up the mountain... Uh, sort of counterintuitively, is a lot quicker than coming down. So coming down this mountain could take months, whereas going up the mountain to apex really only took a few weeks, right? And we're seeing now, we are seeing places like Hong Kong and Singapore have an increase in cases, potentially because they've either repatriated people who were infected or they've relaxed other measures that kept people from getting infected. So we cannot, it's going to be a very long time before we can say this this battle is beat. And I don't want all people, right. Mike, don't tell people that it's all over just because you see the numbers going down. But Alex, let me just ask this, which is as the new data has been coming in, they feed them into these statistical models, the models that at one point were showing that, you know, 100,000 to 240,000 Americans would die. Then it was down to 60,000. In terms of fatalities, those numbers seem to be coming down. Uh, do you con- expect that to continue? 
look, I mean, you didn't even mention the 2.2 million number that really spooked Trump last month and um, really terrified him and, and I think a lot of people in the White House and led to the implementation of more strict measures. Yeah, I, I hope we don't hit 60,000 if we do. You know, if we do, I think it's still, I think we can still, it's, it's sort of, it's so difficult to talk about that many deaths and say, well, that's a success. But the truth is, if we get this under 100,000, I think credibly say we avoided the worst. I mean, it looks right now like we're getting under 100,000, unless this thing comes back somehow stronger a second time around, yeah. which is a possibility. It's not a possibility yeah. that anybody wants to think about, but it is. So, okay, so that's the future, grim as it might be. Let's talk just for a second about the past, and then we're going to have to let you go. One of the things that I think really set Trump off at that briefing that we've been talking about is a New York Times story kind of exhaustingly laying out all of the things that he and his administration did not do to prepare for this pandemic and ignoring a lot of warnings, taking too long to institute social distancing measures and other mitigation efforts. You've uh, done a lot of reporting on warnings about a catastrophic pandemic going way further back. You have a great story this week on the Yahoo News site about an intelligence officer named Karen Monahan, who was a early Cassandra about the threat of a pandemic. Uh, tell us about what uh, the report that she wrote all the way back in 2003 and why it was uh, largely ignored. Well, Monahan spent um, about three decades at a, uh, at a lefty think tank called the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, <laughs> she was, in other words, she was a CIA analyst you know, tasked with uh, global health and economics. She retired three year, about three years ago as a senior intelligence officer. So she is about as deeply enmeshed in the national security intelligence uh, sphere as anyone. And um, her sort of boss or predecessor at the National Intelligence Council, David Gordon, in 1999, did the first big report saying, look, a big pandemic is coming. Then four years later, she now also at the National Intelligence Council, which is like which is itself a kind of think tank that does pull people from different intelligence agencies and gets them to work on long term planning. Right. So it kind of pulls people from the CIA and other places. She started following the SARS epidemic, which started in China in late 2002, early 2003. It's a virus that came from a wildcat SARS is the type of coronavirus. So she produced short reports throughout that winter, spring, and early summer. And then in the summer of 2003, did a longer report that basically said SARS was bad. We're going to have a pandemic that's worse. And in her report, she basically predicted the scenario that we're living through today. Shortage of everything from shortage of ventilators to lack of diagnostic tests to people being misinformed and made more afraid than they need to be by news outlets that aren't perhaps just reporting responsibly or accurately. So, you know, one of the things that she said, and I think that, that I have checked with others and appears to be quite true, is that we were so focused on terrorism after 9-11, we dropped the ball on pandemics. And, uh, you could say that uh, I, I spoke to John Seifer, a former 
also someone who's many decades at the CIA. And he said, you know, what Karen, the way Karen was worried about pandemics, I was worried about Russia. And nobody wanted to think about Russia in the aughts, right? I, I, you guys remember when Romney said in 2012 that Russia was our greatest geopolitical enemy. Obama and many others made fun of him for it. Well, we were so focused on terror for so many years, we missed other threats that had nothing to do with al-Qaeda or ISIS, and pandemics were one of them. Well, you're always fighting the last war, and Isakoff and I know as well as anyone that that is the case, given that in 2003, we were singularly, at Newsweek magazine, singularly focused on the terrorism threat and the al-Qaeda story. And I dare say, I don't remember, Mike, assigning you any stories about the coming pandemics. And if I had, I think you probably would have given me a quizzical look. <laughs> and wouldn't have given you a story, probably. <laughs> but, uh, but it does raise the question, though, and uh, this is a serious one. Okay, what threats are we ignoring now? Because I was thinking we are exactly the same thing. Yeah, pandemics, climate, climate yeah. change. Yeah. Well, we do have uh, somebody to talk about climate change uh, later this week. A pretty big newsmaker. I'll just tease that and leave it. I, I think it's very interesting. By the way, George W. Bush in the summer of 2005, he's at his ranch in Crawford. And he gets an early copy of John Barry's uh, book on the 1918 flu. And he's really interested and really terrified by this pandemic. And he tells his uh, Homeland Security advisor, Fran Townsend, get me a plan. We need to have a pandemic plan because we can't have this happen. Now, it's August 2005. Within a couple of weeks, Katrina hits. And although they do come up with a pandemic plan, nobody is thinking. He actually says in mid-August or early August, you know, pandemics are a serious threat. But of course, within two or three weeks after that, nobody's thinking about anything other than Americans. It's worth pointing out that the guy who put together that plan, who coordinated for Fran Townsend, was Tom Bossert at the Bush White House, who then became uh, Trump's first Homeland Security Advisor, very attuned, actually did the briefing for the income or was there at the briefing that the Obama folks gave about pandemics to the Trump transition. Bossert presided. And then it's Bossert who was fired in 2018 by John Bolton. John Bolton then dissolves the pandemic response group that was part of the National Security Council. And if you're looking for evidence that the Trump folks were not attuned to this threat, you need go no further than those actions, the firing of, of, of Bossert and the dismissal. of Well, the in fact, and, well, and in fact, Alex, I think you interviewed Lisa Monaco, who was Obama's last Homeland Security advisor, she added pandemic to the Homeland Security briefing for the incoming Trump administration and briefed Bossert. And according to your account, Bossert was fixated on it, took it really seriously. And then (laughs) that's exactly what you told me. That's exactly what Lisa told me last week. And then he's gone. By the way, uh, Mike, do you think uh, John Bolton will address the firing of Bossert and the dissolving of the dissolution of that pandemic team in uh, his, his forthcoming book? 
in his forthcoming book that may or may not ever see the light of day. Uh, it was supposed to have uh, come out weeks ago. It's been delayed. It's still officially, I checked this yesterday, still officially says May 12th as the release date on Amazon. We'll see, but I suspect that we won't hear very much about the pandemic threat that John Bolton was not uh, attuned to uh, in that book, uh, given that he wrote this pre-COVID and clearly was fixated on other things. But Well, I would say that he probably at this point wishes that he had testified during the Senate impeachment trial and had released the book back then if he could have, because I'm not sure his book sales are going to be quite as uh, robust uh, in the middle of all of this, but we'll see. What, could I ask you guys a question? No, nobody gets to ask us questions on Skullduggery. <laughs> go ahead. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead, Alex. What do you make of this notion, um, and I know our excellent national security reporter, uh, General Claflin, is working on this, that this thing came from a lab in Wuhan? Is that is that something that, I mean, is, is this... I, I'm intrigued by this. I mean, this is not a conspiracy theory in the sense of the virus was a, a bioengineered weapon developed by Chinese scientists working for the Communist Party. It's that there was uh, a lab very nearby that o- open air market that was doing research on bats and the transmission of uh, uh, bats, of, of viruses through bats. And the argument is that and this has been made by some respectable people, that that lab did not have optimal security. I think it was two levels down below the one recommended for dealing with serious uh, viruses such as this, and that something could have escaped. We don't know that. There's no direct evidence for it, but it is an intriguing possibility, and I, I think it is important to know exactly how the virus got out into the public. Well, uh, this is a good tease for Jenna's story, which uh, will be coming shortly. I'll say a couple of things. One, this is something that is actually being seriously discussed within intelligence uh, circles in the United States government. Career people professionals, uh, so not uh, political people who may be, you know, China baiters or who have have an axe axe to grind against China. And also, as we have reported a number of times, Chinese biosecurity has been something that the U.S. government has been worried about for a long time. We had a story about uh, Chinese researchers coming into the country for legitimate purposes to do research, but with vials of SARS and MERS and other pathogens and, you know, without the kind of security precautions you would want them to take. So this is a real, again, we don't know exactly what happened, but this is a a very serious issue that is being discussed within government circles and should be. But how do you talk about, I'm sorry, I know you guys, but how do you talk about something like this without descending into xenophobia or, or, or just conspiracy theory. I mean, it's so hard. I mean, I why is it xenophobia or conspiracy or a conspiracy theory to examine how the virus got what its origins were? Because that seems to me to be essential information for protecting against the next one. It does raise questions. There's no question this came from China. It that was the first outbreak. And there are serious questions about how forthcoming 
forthcoming and transparent the Chinese have been about what they know. And so I don't yeah, I mean, the answer can't be it's... that you're not going to report the truth because some people are going to twist it into something xenophobic. So you just report it. You report like, you know, you report it carefully. Uh, you don't go beyond the facts. And, you know, you pay attention to your tone and your headline and, you know, but you got to report report the news. And I should point out that Josh Rogan, a recent uh, skullduggery guest, has a column up this morning. State Department cables warned of safety issues at Wuhan lab studying bat coronaviruses. The, uh, and he's citing cables going back to, 19, uh, to 2018 about the lack of uh, precautions being taken at that Chinese lab uh, near the, at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the lab in question. So I think this is a legitimate story. I think uh, it needs more reporting. And I think, Alex, you're the perfect person to do it. <laughs> We've already got Jenna on the All story. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> you can backstop her. She's she's uh, the per Alex is perfect in a lot of other ways. Jenna's perfect for this story. And so right. people should read it when it comes out. I'm I just hope, trying uh, to get Alex off the air right now so we can <laughs> end right. the podcast. Okay, Let well. him go back to work. Okay. Okay. Thanks to Washington Post media critic Eric Wemple and Yahoo News reporter Alex Nazarian for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.